underdog, a competitor thought to have little chance of winning a fight or contest. A person who seems beat down, overwhelmed, and outmatched, facing impossible odds. Someone in prime position for an upset. I want to welcome everybody who's watching us at home. Also, those of you who are in the room, we're so glad that you're here with us today. We're beginning a brand new series called Underdog, so let's get right into it. Louis Giglio tells the story about a young man named Jared Wallace. Louis writes, Jared can't remember a time when he wasn't competitively running. He was born with running in his blood, as a matter of fact. As a baby, he was pushing a stroller the length of a full marathon even before he could walk. He grew up winning almost every race he ran, and he always did well as a runner in school. Everyone had high hopes for him. In fact, the word Olympics was even whispered as a big dream that could be within reach someday. Well, going into his senior year of high school, he signed with the University of Georgia to run for them on an athletic scholarship, despite having been diagnosed with chronic exertional compartment syndrome. Now, what in the world is that? It's an exercise-induced muscle and nerve condition that causes extreme pain and swelling. Well, he had felt those symptoms for a while, actually about four years. At first, the problem didn't seem so serious to him. It was just some pressure in his calves, but the pain wouldn't go away no matter what he tried, and the pain just kept getting worse. Finally, Jared had surgery to correct the problem, but complications set in serious complications. He lost about 60% of the muscle in one leg from his knee down, but he was determined to run no matter what. So one day he tried to run around the track, but the pain was too great. He completed the lap, crossed the finish line, and fell on his face in tears. Jared knew at that point that his dream of running was over. At that low, low point, Jared did decide to keep on running, but this time he decided to run away from God. Over the next few months, he started drinking, started doing drugs, started sleeping around. Nothing could quench the pain that he felt in his heart. The physical complications with his leg grew worse and worse as each day went by. And then one day, Jared heard the words that changed his life forever. His disease-wracked leg needed to be amputated. And there was no way other than that. He had his leg amputated at the age of 20. The surgery was successful. Six weeks to the day after that amputation, Jared walked pain-free for the first time in four years. He walked pain-free using a prosthetic leg. Twelve weeks after the amputation, he started to run again. Jared set a new goal, to run the Paralympic Games. And not only run, but set a world record. So he started training, but then bursitis kicked in. One day, Jared was resting on the couch at his home, and God used that quiet, small moment to impress upon his heart that he still had a huge hope and future for Jared. In the quietness of that moment, God seemed to be saying, it doesn't matter if you do important things. What matters is that you draw close to me. It was in that moment that Jared decided he was going to start heading back home, start heading back to God. In time, the bursitis went away, and Jared resumed training. He qualified for the U.S. team that was headed to London in 2012, qualified in two events, the 400-meter sprint and the 4-by-100 relay. He and his teammates had high expectations to run well, but his team ended up having a horrible day. 
Jarrett tripped on one of the exchanges during the relay and nearly fell. The team finished in third, only to find out later that they had been disqualified because one of the runners had stepped over the line during the exchange. Jared was absolutely devastated. That night, sitting frustrated in his room, he asked God, what's the purpose behind all of his trials? And in the quietness and that still small voice that God gives us, God said to him, I've given you an amazing story. When you go back home, I want you to share your story. More people will be able to relate to a stumble than they will to a medal. So Jared shared his story, stayed faithful to God, and he kept running. The next year, for the World Championships in France, Jared qualified for the 100-meter, 200-meter, and the 4-by-100-meter relay. And during the prelims of the 200, Jared gave it his all, and he broke a world record. Now, there were a lot of interviewers afterwards. They all went around him, talking to him. One question after the other was coming. And here was the question that came up more than any other. Are you going to run faster tomorrow? And all he could say is, I hope so. But that night, as he lay there in his hotel room, he thought about all those interviews. And he remembered how unsatisfied the interviewers had been with his answer. For Jared, all the questions were an echo of the world telling him that his best was never going to be good enough. Yet Jared felt like the Lord was satisfied with him because he found his satisfaction in God. The race had already been run. Well, the next day, he gets ready to run his race, and Jared ran free. He crossed the finish line and set a new world record in the 200 meter. Amazingly, he had beat his own world record. Today on the blade that now serves as his lower leg, Jared has inscribed one short phrase that tells it all. I run for him. Now that, my friend, is an underdog who overcame unbelievable odds. So today, we're going to look at a person in the Bible that did the same kind of thing. When the odds were against him, he stood strong. Now, I want you to think about this. History remembers the brave, and we listen to their stories, and we admire their acts of courage. I guess that's why the most loved stories in the Bible are stories of courage. We love the story of David running out onto the battlefield to take on the giant Goliath. I imagine in my mind, Goliath looking at that boy and saying, do you want a piece of me? And I imagine David looking back at him saying, no, I don't want a piece of you. I want the whole thing. We love the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who defied a king and were willing to be burned alive for what they believed in. We love the courage of Peter who stepped out on the boat during a storm and walked on the water with Jesus. Well, today we're going to look at one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible. This man is one of my personal heroes. His name was Daniel, and he lived his life for an audience of one. Let me set this story up. When Daniel was a young man, he was taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar and forced to live in Babylon. Now, whenever Nebuchadnezzar plundered an enemy country, he would always take back with him the brightest and youngest talent that country had to offer. He would then indoctrinate these young people into the Babylonian pagan way of life. In Daniel chapter 1, Daniel takes a stand against eating food from the king's table because the food has been offered to idols. One of the things we're going to learn about Daniel is he doesn't care what anybody else thinks of him. He only cares what God wants for his life. Now, in a tremendous act of courage that could cost Daniel his life, he refuses to eat the food. In fact, if you read through the first few chapters of the book of Daniel, you'll find him taking one stand after another for God. And each time, each time, God is faithful to him. Well, when Daniel chapter 6 begins, Daniel's now an old man. 
Most scholars believe that he's around 83 years old. Now, there's a new king over Babylon. His name is Darius. And in Darius's new position, he begins to reorganize the government. The Bible says this, it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule through the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so the king might not suffer loss. Okay, here's Daniel. He's 83 years old and he's still going strong. He has no intention at all of coasting into heaven. Now, I love elderly people. It might be too long, I'll be an elderly person myself. Well, there were two elderly people living in a Florida mobile home park. Uh, one was a widower, the other was a widow. Uh, they had known each other for a number of years. Well, one evening, they were at a community supper in the big activity center that was there. And these two were at the same table across from one another. And as the meal went on, he made a few admiring glances at her, finally gathered up, gathered up the courage to ask her, will you marry me? Well, after about six seconds of careful consideration, she said, well, yes. Yes, I will. Well, the meal ended with a few more pleasant exchanges. They went to their respective homes. But the next morning, the man was troubled. He couldn't remember, did she say yes or did she say no? So he went to the telephone, he called her. He explained to her that he, re he didn't remember as well as he used to and he was, he was curious, did you say yes or did you say no to my marriage proposal? She said, well, well I, said, I said yes and I meant it with all of my heart. Then she continued, and I'm so glad that you called because I couldn't remember who had asked me. One of the things I love about this church is we have so many seniors who understand that as a follower of Jesus Christ, there's no such thing as retirement. Every day, every day, friends, is an opportunity to serve God and serve others. I'm so proud of our senior adults around here who don't look for someone else to do what must be done. Friends, as long as there's breath in your body, God has a plan and God has a purpose for your life. The Bible tells us that Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole entire kingdom. Now, here's a guy, age 83, who's running circles around all the young guns. And everything Daniel does, he does with excellence. As soon as the other two administrators found out that the plan was to place Daniel in charge of them, they decided they just couldn't sit back and let that happen. Look at what the Bible says. It says, at this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. So Daniel had integrity. They could find no corruption in him. Now, friends, if Daniel was alive today, guess what they would check? They would check his computer, they would check his emails, they would check his social media accounts, they would talk to his friends, they would talk to his enemies, they would do a thorough investigation, wouldn't they? So here's the question I have for you. If someone thoroughly investigated your life, what would they find? If we put our name in the place of Daniel's and placed our occupation where his was, would the conclusion be the same? Would they say that they found no corruption in you? Would that be how it would read for you, or would it read a little bit differently? See, are, are, you, are you playing with something you shouldn't be playing with? Are you doing something you shouldn't be doing? 
Friends, there's, there's, it's too much at stake to play games with sin. Our families are at stake. Our careers are at stake. Our impact in the world is at stake. Our reputation's at stake. God's reputation is at stake. Everything we've worked so hard to build can be destroyed in a matter of moments. So be a person of integrity. Well, they couldn't find anything to discredit him. And the Bible says this, finally these men said, well, we're never going to find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the kings and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. They set King Darius up. They lied to him. They told him that all the administrators were in favor of this new law. So Darius just assumed that Daniel was okay with it as well. And who doesn't want to be a god for 30 days? Wouldn't you like to be a god for 30 days? It appeals to us, doesn't it? We like to be our own god. We like to call our own shots. We don't like anybody telling us what to do. We can do what we want to do. We won't do what we won't want to do. What happened next shouldn't surprise me, but it does. Daniel's integrity seems almost outrageous in what we see in our culture today. The Bible says this. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Now, here's my question. There's a, a law that comes out. You're not supposed to pray for 30 days, and then he goes and he, and he prays. Why in the world would he go do that? I mean, would you have done that? If I were Daniel, I think I probably would have looked for a way around the law, don't you think? I probably would have said, well, I, I can't pray in public, okay? I'll just pray in secret. That's what I'll do. I'll just close my eyes, and I'll just mouth my words, and I'll just pray in secret. <laughs> I wonder how many of us would choose that option. Best I can figure it, Daniel's got three options. One, he can stop praying for 30 days. He can pray in secret. Or the third option, he can keep praying as usual. Let me tell you something. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you will face difficult choices. There is a narrow road and there is a wide road. It boils down to this. Will I choose to please God or please man? Will I choose to be obedient to God or will I spend my life justifying my actions? Daniel has never been unfaithful or ashamed of his God, and he's not about to do it now over some 30-day law. How about us? How many times have you sat around when you should have stood up? How many times did we remain quiet when we should have spoken out? And why, why, why in the world did we do that? Was it because we were ashamed to stand up for the one who always stands up for us? Were we afraid of what someone else would say or what somebody else would do? The king's officials followed Daniel from a distance, and they watched him go into his house. They watched him open up his window, and they watched him bow down and pray. And you know what those guys did? They ran back to the king as the sissy boys that they were, 
and they tattletailed and they told him what they'd seen. Now, Darius knows at this point that he's been fooled by these men, but it's too late. Once a law's been passed, even the king is subject to that law. The Bible says this. It says, Darius was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. But there was no way out. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel, and they threw him into the lion's den. And the king said this. He said, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. And then a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation wouldn't be changed. And then the king went back to his palace, and he spent the night, and he couldn't eat, and he didn't want any entertainment to be brought to him, and he couldn't sleep. He just tossed and turned all night. Now, let me show you a picture of a lion's den that was unearthed in Babylon. So you get kind of a visual of what Daniel is getting lowered down into. Now here's my question. I wonder what Daniel was thinking as he was being lowered down. He's 83 years old. I wonder if he was looking back on his life and remembering all the times that God had been faithful to him. I wonder if he thought about his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow down to a golden idol and were thrown into a fiery furnace as a result. Do you you remember what they said to the king before they were thrown in that furnace? They said, even if our God does not rescue us, we will not bow down to your statue of gold. And, And when they were thrown in the furnace, the Bible tells us that a fourth person appeared in the flames. Now, many biblical scholars believe that this was Jesus. This is an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. You see, there was another in the fire standing next to those three men. And I wonder how many times Daniel listened to those three guys share about the faithfulness of God and how not even a hair on their head was singed. But now it's Daniel's life that's on the line. Would God come through for him? Would God do a miracle in his midst? I don't think it mattered to Daniel any more than it mattered to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. No matter what. No matter what the outcome, they were going to stay true to God. I wonder what it was like in that lion's den as the lions walked around him. I wonder, did Daniel sleep at all that night? And did he think, if I close my eyes, I'm meow mix. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist that one. The Bible says this, At the first light of dawn... The king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Now, when the king asked that question, if I was Daniel, I would have paused. Maybe I would have groaned a little bit. Just to leave a little more suspense. But Daniel wasn't like me. Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. And the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. When I think about the life of Daniel, 
I think about the fact that he stood for what he believed in, even to the point where he was willing to die for that belief. And here's my big question. Do you have anything in your life that you're willing to die for? Let me ask you, is, is, is money worth dying for? How, how about your car? How about your house? Is there any material possession that's actually worth laying our life down for? And here's what's interesting. We worry about these things. We consume our minds with them, but none of that stuff really matters. Think about it. What do you have in your life that's worth dying for? Got any stakes in the ground where you'd say, this is what life is about. These are the unconditionals of my life. Ed Stetzer writes that it's been the tradition of soldiers and missionaries to leave their families a last letter only to be read in the event of their death. These letters not only contain emotional goodbyes, but they're also personal statements about why they chose risk over safety, why the cause was worth dying for. There was a gal by the name of Karen Watson. She was a young missionary. She was uh, recently murdered in Iraq. At her funeral, her last letter was read. This is what she wrote. She said, Dear Pastor, you should only be opening this letter in the event of my death. When God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible, my heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place. I was called to him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory, my reward. His glory, my reward. The missionary heart, she writes, cares more than some think is wise, risks more than some think is safe, dreams more than some think is practical, expects more than some think is possible. I was called not to comfort or to success, but to obedience. There is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving him. I love you and my church family in his care, Karen. If you wrote your last letter today, what would you write about? What would you say? Will we be defined by action and sacrifice or caution and complacency? Will we be defined by lip service or life service? When the question is, what would I be willing to die for? The answer to that question can't be anything but revolutionary. So I ask you to consider it. How will your last letter read? Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Daniel, how he overcame unbelievable odds against him. Lord, how he stayed faithful, how he stayed true to you, even in the face of death. Lord, we say all the time that we want to live for you. But Lord, I pray that we would also be willing to lay down our lives for you to lay down our dreams and our hopes and our ambitions, to want something better, something greater, to live a life of significance, a life that matters, a life that counts. Oh, God, more than anything else, we don't want to waste this one shot at life that we've been given. So help us, Lord. Teach us to number our days. Help us to gain a heart of wisdom. Help us to be concerned about the things that matter, the things that last. Help us to pour our lives into those kinds of things, to leave a legacy behind that our children would want to follow. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
If you're in the room right now with me, uh, you have an opportunity to get your life right with the Lord. You say, you know what, I've been kind of squandering my life. I'm kind of doing my own thing. I'm really not living my life on purpose. I'm not living my life for the things that really count, for the things that matter. It's kind of a here today, gone tomorrow, living for temporary stuff that doesn't last. You have an opportunity, friends, to live for eternal things, for eternal values, to pour your life into things that matter, into things that count. And it all begins with the relationship with Jesus Christ. And so my hope is for those of us who are in the room that you'll go to the first step room and that you'll go talk to one of our pastors and, and they'd be able to help you and what it means to have a real relationship with the real God who really does love you and does have a plan and purpose for your life. And if you're at home watching me on TV, maybe you're in the gym on the treadmill right now and you're watching this, my hope is that when you get done exercising, when the service is over, you would call me, you would text me, 505-922-9200. say, I want to live a life of significance. I want to live a life that counts. I want to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So you call or you text me, 505-922-9200. Pastors are standing by.